0: There is nothing stronger than the wonder-working power of the blood. Mm. It's always a strange thing, I think, if you are an outsider looking in to see a bunch of people celebrating the blood of someone. Mm. But for those of us who know the wonder-working power of the blood, it just makes perfect sense. Mm. Amen. Ryan, your mic's off. so. (laughs) But thank you for the amen. (laughs) That was great. Um, It's a privilege to be here this morning to have the opportunity to share uh, God's Word with you. Uh, I love preaching God's Word because when I'm given a text, this week it's Mark 14, um, I get to come to the text and I have no clue what it is that I'm going to say. But I know that in communing with the text and with the Lord and with the Spirit that a message is gonna come out that hopefully rightly declares what this text says and by His Spirit, He does a work in people's hearts. He does a work in my heart. And He'll do a work in yours if you're listening, not to me this morning, but to the Holy Spirit through His Word. And so we get the great joy of coming to Mark chapter 14 this morning. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. Before we dive into the text, I just want to let you know that I love sandwiches. Years ago, my wife and I watched the Food Network Star, and I was rooting for the sandwich king. That was his name. He ended up winning, actually and he's one of the hosts on The Kitchen, which has been running for some time now. I say all this to simply state that I love sandwiches. Cubans, Rubens, grilled cheese, Philly cheesesteak, leftovers from Thanksgiving in sandwich form, that's the best, and burgers are a whole other thing. They're a different category, but same concept, right? Bread and meat. It's a beautiful combo. Uh, I, I think that the writer of Mark, Mark, likes sandwiches too. I do. For him, it was probably heroes, shawarma, and lamb burgers. That's probably what they ate in the first century. But the reason why I think Mark liked sandwiches is because he uses the model of a sandwich to tell the stories of Jesus in his gospel. Multiple times, nine to be exact, Mark uses a literary device of sandwiching his main point in between two similar themes. So if you're looking at your Bible scrolling on the phone, you're probably going to miss it. But if you look at it on a page, you'll see the the titles all on the same page. And oftentimes you'll notice that these two are are similar and then there's a little story in the middle. And that's exactly what Mark is doing here in Mark 14. So let's look at the, let's look at the bread on the, on the two sides. First verse one, chapter 14, verse one. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So in this first section, the chief priest describes they're wanting to get rid of Jesus, but it's Passover time and at Passover, Jerusalem is packed. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of political unrest and a whole lot of people crammed into one city. It didn't help matters that revolts and mobs had happened in recent history. So it was a very tense time. And the priests are like, we probably should wait till after the Passover to take care of Jesus. But then if you go to the other side, you'll look at verse 10, chapter 14, verse 10. And it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus in this. And the chief priests now have an insider who can tell them where Jesus is and when they can secretly arrest him. They can't pass up, pass up this opportunity, so Jesus is going down. And right in the middle of this conspiracy, this secretive plot to kill Jesus is a passionate display of devotion to Jesus. The contrast here could not be more extreme. Chief priests, Judas seeking to betray and kill him. And then right in the middle, a story of a woman who shows incredible honor to Jesus Christ with an act of faith and devotion. Mark sandwiches in between the evil plot to kill Jesus, a picture of overwhelming faith. So before we come to verses three through nine this morning, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to use his word to work in us and by his spirit to move in this place this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're wanting to hear from you in your word. Lord, we want to know the presence of your spirit so that you can use your Spirit-inspired Word to change us, to transform us, to convict us, to encourage us, to edify us. God, would you do all that you can do through your Word this morning? Lord, give me strength and grace to deliver accurately what is in this text. And would you do the work? Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you exalt the glory of Jesus? And Lord, would you astound us with your goodness and your love? And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Our text for this morning is Mark 14, three through nine. Let's read it. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it out and over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her." Here in this word, we first see an action taken by a woman. And what she does is she breaks this flask and she pours it over Jesus' head. Now, in this culture, anointing a guest with oil was a common sign of honor and hospitality. It was a way of showing honor to a visiting guest. It'd be like pulling out a special aged wine that's reserved for the very special guest at the table. Or if you're into essential oils, it's like offering your guest a dab of frankincense. If you're in that world, you know how much it costs. But this act by this woman is at a whole nother level. She pours out everything. It's, the the text says it's an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. It's like Mark's trying to use all of these descriptors to show how amazingly costly this is. He says it is very costly because in the next verse, we're gonna find out it's worth 300 denarii, which is a whole year's worth of wages a whole year's worth. Think about that. This item is so precious. It is, an, it is a treasure, a year's worth of labor and work. It costs a lot and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus's head and it's messy and it's lavish and it's extreme. And the smell just fills the room. This is a display of high honor of massive honor. I mean, what else is the woman gonna do? This is Jesus we're talking about. How do you honor the man who is God in the flesh? How do you bless the one from whom all blessings flow? What, What can you do that could measure to his greatness and his goodness? It's like the hymn says, could we with ink the oceans fill? Or were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. His love is amazing. His person is excellent and beyond all beauty and glory. And how, do, how does this woman, how do we honor the God whose excellencies exceed all beauty and glory? We, how can we honor him? We, we honor him like this woman does. She holds nothing back. She holds nothing back. I think to honor Jesus is to hold nothing back. That's what Jesus wants to hold nothing back from how amazing and glorious and honorable he is. It's to pour it all out. Jesus is so worthy, drops and portions will not suffice. He deserves it all. And the woman knows this about Jesus. So she breaks the flask and pours it all out. She holds nothing back. She knows that her costly oil doesn't even come close to measuring up to the honor that Jesus deserves. And so that's the action that the text gives us. And now the conversation is gonna revolve around this action of this woman, this very extravagant display of honor and love. And you'll notice that the table has an interesting response The attitude at the table is not too happy about this scene because they don't see the expression of honor. All they see is the mismanagement of funds. They say this, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. So there's, there's three things that are kind of off about this response. The first thing is the attitude itself, right? What does the text say? It says that they said to themselves indignantly. They scolded her. They were enraged at this break in conventional wisdom. This is not how you spend a year's worth of wages. This is not how you handle that precious treasure. Why are you wasting it all on Jesus? Why do they respond that way? Why is their attitude off in this way? It's because not only is their attitude off, their value system is off. They they can't grasp this level of devotion. <laughs> They can't fathom this level of honor. They are dumbfounded by the woman's lavish display of love, and they are angry with her that she would waste her money on Jesus. Have you noticed that it's really easy to talk to your neighbors about football? It's really easy to talk to your neighbors about your family, about your music, about your movies, about even politics will be put up with for a time. But if but if you start talking excitedly about Jesus, it's like everything shuts down. It's like everything backs away. It's like, ah, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can go there with you. And actually, it kind of like turns me off. I really don't want that around. I don't, really, I don't want to be around that. Right? That, that kind of excitement about Jesus that just loves Jesus and that's overwhelmed by Jesus' goodness, that pours everything out for Jesus, that will make the people around you very uncomfortable because those who value Jesus above everything will be despised by those who don't. That's what we see here in this text. The the woman, she gives everything for Jesus. And those who don't have the same value system, who don't treasure Jesus like she does, they don't just say, oh, that's her thing. No, they don't like what she did. And they scold her for it. They're indignant with her. The world can understand our weekly attendance at church, because they have their own clubs and meetings and religious practices. The world can understand you're giving money to the church. They have their own altruism and that's all tax deductible, right? So money management. The world can understand that you have moral principles. They have their own versions, but the world will not get it when Jesus becomes your highest value and your supreme Lord. It just won't make sense. And when you value Jesus above everything and pour out your life for his kingdom, you can expect pushback. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can even expect pushback from your Christians who don't have the same value system of Jesus, right? Um, there's There's a missionary, his name's John G. Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. He wanted to take the gospel to these islands that were very remote and very unengaged and unreached. And he was gonna take the gospel so that that the, the kingdom of God could grow into all nations. And he got some pushback from people who thought he was crazy. And they even got indignant with John G. Patton. One man even spoke up and said, John, you will be eaten by cannibals. You're crazy. To which John Patton gives one of my favorite quotes of all time. I've put it up there so you can read it with me. He says this Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. John G. Patton says, if I can but live and die, serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, he's worth it." When he got there, within a month, his wife and his son died. Can you imagine the statements of those in the, in the back at home in the Scotland world who were saying, don't go? Could you imagine what they're saying? They're probably saying, what a waste. What a waste. Why, did you, why would you do that? Why waste your life and your family's life on a hopeless mission to an unreached people? But after John Patton was there for years of patient ministry, actually being sought out by cannibals at one point, By the time of his death, the entire island of Aniwa professed Christianity. And in 1899, there was a New Testament in the language printed and there was an establishment of missionaries in 25 of the 30 islands on the New Hebrides. It's not wasted. But here was a man who, like this woman in this text, wanted to pour it all out. If I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, I'm gonna break the whole flask and I'm gonna let it run all over Jesus because he is that precious to me. But worship like that is going to look like waste to the world. And we need to recognize this. Worship, wholehearted, wholly devoted worship to Jesus will look like waste to the world. It's like an ironic spin on John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. Like John Piper's saying it from the Christian perspective, don't waste your life, spend it all in the kingdom. But from the world's perspective, your pursuit of Jesus is going to look like wasting your life. It's not going to mesh with their value system. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The woman doesn't care about the opinions of the people in the room. She's focused on Jesus. I wanna I want bring up one more point about what's off about this response. Their attitude is off, their value system is off, and lastly, their timing is off. I don't wanna to spend too much time here, but... Wasn't it actually a good thing that they were caring about the poor, (laughs) right? Like they're like a year's worth of wages. You really could have done something good with that. Like you could have given it to the poor. That seems like a good sentiment. Like 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 a natural response to a very lavish expression that costs a lot of money. But what they didn't understand was the timing. So. There are three years from Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist to his death and resurrection, three years where Jesus Christ is on the scene, God in the flesh, at the climax of history. Three years. Thousands of years before, all looking forward to this day. The thousands of years that have come after, all resulting from the transformation of history that happened at that time. Three years, the time is now when the when the Pharisees ask Jesus, why do your disciples not fast like everyone else? Jesus responds, they're not fasting because the bridegroom is here. Like it's it's the wedding, it's the time that I'm here on earth right now to bring about salvation, to enact a new exodus and a new creation into the world. Something cosmically significant is happening with Jesus being in the flesh on earth. This is the time to pour it all out because there will not be another chance to sit at the table with Jesus like this until he returns. Verse 7, Jesus says, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. You see, the poor were there before Jesus and the law and the prophets called God's people to care for the poor. And the poor have been with us after Jesus and the Lord Jesus and the apostles call the church to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow. That's a calling for all those who worship God. But at this time, At this moment, the woman knows that the the game time is up, the final seconds are on the clock, and so she pours it all out. This is the time to waste it all on Jesus. So what does Jesus say? What is Jesus' response to the woman? Two points about this response of Jesus And then we'll close. The first is that Jesus held nothing back from us. I think this is why this text is actually in between the the plot to kill Jesus. Because what does Jesus say right here in verse 8? He says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus knows he's there in Jerusalem to die. He knows that he has come into this place at this time to give his life for our salvation. And so the the great display of honor is fitting because he's about to pour out his very blood for our salvation. She pours it all out for Jesus, and Jesus is like, that's... Fitting. That's correct, because I'm about to be the alabaster flask that is broken and poured out for you. He's going to give it all. Jesus is going to hold nothing back. There's an old song that I used to listen to when I was a kid, and it says, though you were perfect and holy, you gave up yourself willingly. You spared no expense for my pardon. You were used up and wasted for me, broken and spilled out. The reason why we desire to honor Jesus by holding nothing back is because we are responding to our Savior who held nothing back from us. He gave his very life to rescue us from sin, death, and the devil. He poured out his blood for our forgiveness and for our salvation. Paul makes this point in Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ has done the work first. He has loved us first. And so now we respond in the same manner, giving ourselves to him. And we take up our cross and we deny ourselves and we follow him. Do, do, does Gospel Hope Church, which I'm now a member of, do, do we want to be a people that display the reconciling hope of the gospel? yes, then that's gonna look like pouring ourselves out for his glory and for his kingdom. It's gonna look like honoring Jesus with our lives and loving this world as Jesus has done for us. See, the paradigm of our lives, the the mental model by which we exist is the death of Christ. (laughs) The death of Christ is the, the, the framework in which we live and move and have our being because it's changed everything for us and we're called to enter into his death, which we know results in suffering and then glory. The paradigm for our lives, for our education, for our families, for our work, for our retirement is the death of Christ. That's the paradigm. What does it look like to pour it all out in this season? So whether your season is in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s, I skip the teenage years, I skip the the early elementary years, whatever season you are in, the question is, what does it look like for me having been changed by the love of Christ in the death of Christ, how how now can I pour myself out as Jesus poured himself out for me? This woman's story, it says in verse nine, will be told everywhere the gospel goes out in memory of her. (laughs) Why? Because this is the picture of faith and love and honor and worship and hope. This is what it looks like. Jesus held nothing back from us for our salvation. So we hold nothing back from him for his glory. Jesus held nothing back. The second thing that Jesus says here is he makes two statements that are kind of affirmations of what the woman did to honor him. Because remember, he's in a room, everyone's scolding her, and he says, leave her alone. He says two things. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And he says, she has done what she could. She has done a beautiful thing to me, and she has done what she could. I was um, at our table yesterday and my daughter, Ariel, who's my youngest, she's seven years old now, she brought me a couple things that she colored for me. And my seven-year-old daughter is not, you know, Leonardo da Vinci or anything. She brings me just a little sketch of crayons and, you know, it looks, thank you. But do you know why? when you're a parent and your children bring you those things, you know why they're so precious? Because what's motivating that action? It's not, oh, I've got to meet my quota for the day. Oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do as a child in this home. It's motivated by love. I just thought you would want this picture, Dad. And I say, this is a beautiful thing to me, right? She did what she could. Because the point is not that it was a year's worth wages. The point is that it was motivated by love for Jesus. And so when a text or a preacher calls for wholehearted abandon. Right? When Jesus' sacrifice of his very life is presented as the model for how we should live, there's a tendency for us as Christians to come away feeling condemned. Have you ever felt that? Oh man, I'm not measuring up. I'm not, I'm not laying it all on the line. I'm not pouring it all out. I'm not pulling my weight and I'm not doing everything like I'm supposed to. And we can walk out of a service where we proclaim the gospel feeling condemned, but that is not how Jesus calls us to love him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus does not look down at you despising you because you need to get your act together. Jesus is inviting us to see this woman's love for him. And he's saying, I have loved you in this way, love me in this way. It's an invitation I don't want anyone to feel condemned this morning, but I want you to know that Jesus' Jesus' blood was poured out for you on the cross, and that that assures us that we are not condemned, even in our imperfections, even in the ways in which we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but there is this thing called repentance, and we can live in it. And we can keep coming back to Jesus And we can say, Lord, I want to love you more And he will forgive us And he will train us into what it looks like To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength And we will be able to honor him with our lives And he will say to us, that was a beautiful thing to me You have done what you could That's what we want to hear Just what this woman heard We want to apply this woman's faith and example to our lives so that we can hear those two affirmations. You have done a beautiful thing to me. You have done what you could. The question is not what have they done and then measure ourselves up to everyone else around us. The question is what can you do to honor Jesus, to pour yourself out to him and experience the same affirmation? What beautiful thing can you do to honor Jesus? Right, the the gospel hopes kind of mission there is um, how it works itself out is that they wanna make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. So with those categories, what does it look like to pour ourselves out? This is where I hope that you're communing with the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna gonna invite you to stop listening to me. And I want you to listen to this text and the Holy Spirit in communion with your life, your heart, your mind. What does it look like for you to pour yourself out, to hold nothing back from Jesus? I'm gonna throw out some examples just to help get the pot stirring of what this could do, what this could look like, but you have to buy, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He can make this text apply to your life very specifically, but here's some ways in which maybe the Lord is calling you to pour yourself out to him or to do a beautiful thing to Jesus. Maybe you need to rethink your commute to work. Instead of listening to sports talk and political talk, maybe you just need to pray or play the worship music and sing your heart out. Maybe your drive to and from work can be a beautiful time with Jesus. Maybe you need to rethink your sleep. Go to bed earlier instead of staying up and watching the show or the game so that you can get up earlier to spend time with Jesus in his word and prayer. Maybe your first moment in the day can be a beautiful offering to Jesus. Maybe you need to prioritize reading the Bible with your family and in the chaos of bedtime or in the activity of the morning, what if you poured out some time to stop and lead your family in worship to God? Come on, kids, let's sing a song to Jesus. He is worth it. Maybe your money has become your security and your hope. And what would it look like to pour out a beautiful offering to Jesus with the resources that he's given you? Maybe you need to go on a mission trip, enter into the discomfort and pour yourself out to love others and to share the gospel. Or maybe you just simply need to invite that neighbor over to your house for dinner so that you can show them that you care about them and that you're willing to pray for them if they'd like it. I don't know what it is, but this woman did what she could. (laughs) And and you and I can do the same. This woman gave a year's wages. The widow gave two mites. But they were both beautiful to Jesus. They were both fitting because they were a, a display of holding nothing back. There was um, We moved here from Savannah at the beginning of the year. And, and when I was leaving the church there, there was a family, they had a son named Elliot. He was 10 years old. And next to the offering box on Sunday, the last Sunday that I was there, was an envelope. And it, it didn't fit into the offering box. It was just sitting on the side. And, and, and the envelope said, and some change And this 10-year-old boy Had given me $60 He says, it's to help with your move But there was a line On that envelope That just was both a Grace from the Lord And just an awesome display Of what this woman is showing us in this text He said this on on the envelope This is all my cash this is all my cash. This is all I got. And you need help moving, because we know you're poor. <laughs> and so here you go. What, what an obedient display of love and of kindness and of grace. That was a beautiful thing to Jesus. And he did what he could. And we all can respond to this text in this way. We can all respond to the one who gave it all for us in the same way. And so I wanna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to commune with the Lord and just ask, Lord, what beautiful things can I do for you? How can I show you honor? How can I worship you wholeheartedly, even if it looks like waste to the world? And maybe you need to Get up and go to one of the members of our prayer team. They're here to pray with you. They would love to pray over you. The Lord's calling you to do something and you're afraid or you don't want to or you're feeling like you can't, they would love to pray with you. As we respond to the Word of God and the Spirit of God this morning, let's just take some time to reflect. Lord, we are yours, you have claimed us, you have bought us with a price, we are not our own, and so we seek to glorify you with our bodies. Lord, even as you were broken and spilled out for us, Lord, we want to be willing to pour it all out for you, to hold nothing back. You deserve all honor and glory and blessing forever. Your glory exceeds all other glories. Your beauty exceeds all their beauties. Lord, would our value system be, be right? One that recognizes that you are exalted above all. And Lord, would we live in such a way that declares how valuable you are? And it's in the name of Jesus I pray.